0: RugbyRenegade.com, the number one online strength and conditioning program for rugby. Are you ready to get bigger, stronger, fitter, and faster and dominate your opposition? Welcome to the Rugby Renegade podcast,
1: where we build machines. Today's episode is sponsored by Option Nutrition. To get a 40% discount across their entire batch tested range, Use the code RENEGADE40 at www.onacademy.co.uk forward slash ElitePortal. And of course, members of the Rugby Renegade online subscription programme get an exclusive 5% discount plus free access to the Optimum Nutrition online nutrition course. Yes, welcome back to episode 72 of the Rugby Renegade podcast. My name is Jamie Bain, and today I interview Ben Patrick, the knees-over-toes guy and owner of the Athletic Truth Group. Uh, Ben's got a pretty interesting story. Um, his background's in basketball, uh, and he's come or got over some pretty debil- debilitating knee injuries and operations, and you know, being told he's not going to play basketball at high level again, but he's figured out a way to rehab his knees and get back to playing. And now he's delivering that to to other people with knee issues and he's getting some pretty impressive um, results with people. Um, And again, people who are told they're not going to be able to play to a high level or not do certain exercises, jumping for instance, uh, and now they're getting some awesome awesome results. So it's really, really interesting um, the exercises he uses and how he trains them and the whole philosophy behind it so give it a listen and let us know what you think. Hi Ben, welcome to the Rugby Renegade podcast, it's great to have you on. Uh, Let's start by you telling us a little bit about your background, how you got into strength and conditioning and and who you've worked with and also know um, maybe about your own sort of athletic history, I know you've kind of had injuries and and you've overcome them and that's kind of led to developing your system so it'd be good to hear about that too.
0: Yeah absolutely, thank you so much for having me on. I'm not a rugby player by nature but I do now train, actually, a lot of rugby players for their knees. Knees is my specialty. My background is basketball, and I was one of those obsessive kids who overtrained like, like crazy, really couldn't jump at all and was always trying to do these jump programs and, and completely destroyed my knees. By 14, I was my nickname was Old Man. By 18, I'd been through three surgeries, was pretty much chewed up and spit out of basketball. And at that point, I had to decide if I wanted to do something else in life or if I wanted to try to figure out how to bulletproof the knees. And I made that decision one day that I would devote my entire life to figuring out how to bulletproof the knees. And now, 10 years later, I have over 1,250 knee success stories. I train some of the top paid rugby players, NFL players, NBA players with my knee program and myself. I've got the only documented case of going from less than a 20-inch vertical, so I had a 19-inch vertical, to now over a 40-inch vertical. I have a a 42-and-a-half-inch vertical jump. So that's that's my entire life in a nutshell. (laughs) Ultimate dedication to my sport without any idea that I would run into knee problems, completely failing at my sport, and then having to figure out what I want to do with my life from there and deciding to try to fix the very thing that had stopped me
1: yeah that's a, it's an amazing story and and hopefully we'll uh, we'll learn as much from you as we can um you, you kind of said when you were that crossroads where you were kind of d- deciding what you're going to do and and you obviously decided to to figure out what was going on with your knees and, and how to fix them what were kind of the where did you go and look or what were kind of the um kind of resources you used or where did you where did you get inspiration for the kind of system you've put in place now
0: that's a great question. My keyword I came up with, uh, just the word that popped in my mind, was bulletproof. How do I bulletproof my knees so that playing basketball doesn't hurt my knees? So I really started searching in that line because I, I had already gone through lots and lots of traditional rehab. So I was searching all along the lines of uh, you know things to bulletproof the knees, and the first thing that resonated with me was. Legendary strength coach Charles Poliquin said the athlete whose knees can go farthest and strongest over his toes is actually the most protected. And I uh, I found a guy online named Keegan Smith, an Australian strength coach, also a legend in his own right, who was doing this stuff. Now, to be honest, for me, as a skinny-legged basketball player, um, I wasn't ready for the stuff that I was seeing. So my career kind of became how to regress this stuff so that anyone could do it. And that's, you know, that's kind of how I formulated my system now. And the whole point of my system is to get to where your knees can go farther and stronger over your toes than those that you're competing against. So the same actions for you become easy. And that's exactly what's happened for myself and so many others now is that the same sport that once was tough now is easy. And it's only a side effect that we can run faster and jump higher. That wasn't the intention of it, but you can imagine that certain leg muscular starts to change. And when you start to change one area, well, if you're going to jack up, you know, certain muscles, then you start to realize, well, to stay in balance, then I need to get these other muscles. So now, you know, ridiculously strong on different, uh, you know, Nordic hamstring exercises and hip flexor exercises that while not Directly, what I was trying to accomplish with the knees over toes training are needed to stay in balance to what I did develop. So then, before you know it, you just end up. Uh, you know, it was almost like hit me in the face one day that it was like, you know, I I didn't try to dunk. I had already tried my whole life to dunk. I had already written that off as something I could do. And then a few years later, I just found I could dunk easily. So, um, you know, the the athleticism is a side effect, but the system is built is really based on the regression of. How do you start you know, with the worst of the worst? How do you find a, a pain-free level you can do and then progress to the things that the most bulletproof athletes can do? What can they do that you can't and then how the heck do you get there? That's what I do.
1: Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I like you said how the kind of performance was a byproduct of it. A lot of times people look for injury prevention or performance and they see them as completely separate. But obviously you found a way that has has more than injury proofed you it's increased performance as well and that is that is what you know people should look for really and and you've you've done it by reverse engineering what what those good athletes are doing I guess Uh, you've kind of touched on it but maybe go a little bit deeper into what are the kind of fundamentals of your approach to bulletproof knees and and to improve performance
0: yeah I'll, I'll pick some good places to start off with that so the I use different exercises and for me to to put an exercise in my system it has to be like precisely measurable not just something to activate or something like that it has to have an exact measurement to it so the foundational movement of my system is named after my last name it's a it's a Patrick step up and I would describe it in two ways either as a Patrick step or a Patrick step up. And what I mean by that is you don't even have to have a box to step up onto. Uh, Almost if you imagine just, you know, reaching one foot out by, you know, bending the back knee, that would be a Patrick step right there. And there's people that, you know, they can't do that. And it's no wonder that they can't play sports. Meaning is when their knee goes over their toe in the exact normal way that would happen going downstairs or decelerating or going to jump you know, that causes pain. So basically finding the level there that doesn't cause pain, no matter how regressed that may appear, and then really crushing the reps on that and getting stronger on that. And if you do have a step, say you stood on a one inch step, you would never see someone doing this because it would look too pathetic. But, you know, in, in my system, that's exactly what you would do. And before you know it, you're on a two inch, a three inch, a four inch, a five inch, a six inch step, but you're stepping down off of it, not not stepping up onto it with the box in front of you. You're standing on the box, and then you're stepping down off the box, leaving the box behind you so that you're directly measuring how far your knee is going over your toe. And as I said, you can do this standing on the floor, or you can do it on a box, and then you can use weight to determine how strong you are in that motion. So you almost get a direct prediction of how far your ankle can bend. And the less your ankle can bend, the more chance of knee pain and knee ligament tears you have. And the weaker you are in a step-down test, the more chance of knee pain and knee ligament tears you have. But why isn't that exercise just a common staple that people do for their knees if we know that the better the ankle bends and the stronger someone is stepping down? So you'll see some kind of similarities in different physiotherapy practices. Believe it or not, about three-quarters of physios tell you not to let your knees over your toes at all, even though that's not only proven false, but proven to cause knee ligament tear so maybe it's good for repeat business or maybe they're just ignorant of it but we have now a, a measurable system of getting stronger your, your physio if you came in there for a knee injury and now you think you're going to leave in six weeks and go back to what you're doing this is why we see so many athletes with just oh i'm on my you know third knee surgery now or this or that and what i've done is i've turned an entire philosophy of weight room training with eight different lower body exercises all Measurable, all backed by evidence. That is my system. I don't do traditional squats and deadlifts. I don't do Olympic lifts. Yet I'm the only human being with documented sub twenty to over forty inch vertical transformation. I can run four four forty yard dashes and do all these things. So could it work even better with squats, deadlifts, and Olympic lifts? Maybe. But if I already have arguably the best results of all time, why would I change anything? But it's strength. It's each thing is measurable, and you're actually trying to obtain world class strength and that's there's this huge gap between physiotherapy and strength training and in the middle is where everyone is getting hurt and if you can apply that strength training philosophy which we know works to proven physiotherapy movements well that's what I do for a living
1: yeah, yeah it makes a lot of sense and i guess what, my next question would be when when you first um work the client you first meet them what's your what's your initial approach to them is it assessment or do you um, you literally have those regressions that you start with and you work your way up on those.
0: Exactly. Everyone does all eight movements. So me and my mom do the same exercises. The difference is I just set different targets and goals that she's going to achieve. Um, you know, different targets and goals that my pregnant wife is going to achieve. And the the level of it, it's it's comparing you know, taking a walk to Usain Bolt running a hundred meter sprint. We're both going forwards. We're both trying to go this, do the same thing. We're both trying to get somewhere, and that's how I would compare my exercises. So, I've I've never you know done anything different for anyone, and you know it's it's getting now thousands of success stories. So it's the same eight movements, but for any one person, they may fall at all sorts of different levels on the eight exercises, uh, and it you know from one side being different to the other, from the front of the leg to the back of the leg, from the thigh to the lower leg muscles to, you know, so wherever you're at, that is where you're starting. And there's no way to predict that without doing it. So when I coach people online, they have to send in video of their top set on each of these key exercises every time they do them so that I can ensure the form is right. And then I can ensure the progression is right. But there's, there's no way to predict where someone's going to be exactly. I mean, I could guess, but it's almost like each workout is not just a workout; it's also a test. It also is a, a form of measuring where you're at.
1: Yeah, and I, I guess. I guess also it gives them them feedback session to session, and they can see that progress. So that's that's good. And, and I, I guess I don't see why people can argue with that because. The human body is the human body. So those, if those eight exercises are, you know, based on human function, then why would you need anything different? You just it, Exactly. Change. I'd
0: have to come up with a different system for dogs and cats. But for humans, <laughs> it's, for humans it's it's perfectly workable.
1: Yeah. Now, this will be interesting. You said, you know, your background is basketball, but you, you have worked with a lot of rugby players in NFL. It'll be interesting to see this question we ask all the guests on the podcast. And it's, what do you think is the biggest mistake rugby players make when it comes to strength and conditioning? Um obviously, if you want to do it to all athletes, that's fine, but it'd be interested to see what your sort of perceptions are of or your experience of rugby players compared to other athletes.
0: That's a good question now, keep in mind that in training these guys I'm usually you know they're referred to me and they start doing my system. It doesn't mean I'm necessarily uh you know looking at what they were doing wrong in previous systems or trying to trying to criticize previous systems they were doing, so I can really only. Tell you just based on uh, on what they tell me, and I would say that the biggest mistake would be focusing so much on these keywords of like acceleration. Um, we know that almost seven times as much money is spent on studies for acceleration than deceleration, and yet the studies on deceleration really show that the muscles that can handle that acceleration. Actually, plateau bust your ability to accelerate and to prevent injury. So, I think, I think that's the main thing: is, is is a constant focus on acceleration, acceleration, acceleration. You know what explosiveness drills we all want to get more explosive, and it's it's totally understandable. And I think there's value in all those things they're doing, but it, it doesn't make sense to be focusing on that disproportionately to the muscles that are going to allow you to decelerate. I almost would say that. You know, if you keep, if you put, uh, you know, a coin in the jar for, for acceleration, you should be putting one in for deceleration. Otherwise, if you think about the muscles that cause you to accelerate the the glutes and these various things that cause us to go forward, well, if you just look at our skeleton and our tendons and ligaments, we're just asking to get hurt. That's what we're doing. It's like throwing a baseball, the muscles that, you know, to throw a hundred miles an hour, you're just trying to launch your arm out of the socket you know, 57% of pitchers in America have shoulder surgeries now. So yeah, it's cool to be able to accelerate. But if you want to keep accelerating and not get hurt, which is the key to making long term progress, because as you know, you don't, you don't run a kilometer an hour faster every week. If you did that by the end of the year, you'd be twice as fast as as anyone on earth. Yet, if you test someone every week, they're going to hope they run a kilometer an hour faster. So there's this just constant focus on acceleration when I think, the real secret to the best acceleration is never getting hurt and being able to express your full force, being able to build those acceleration muscles without any concern that you'll be able to handle it. So I would say start with deceleration and start with the deceleration muscles and stay one step ahead. I mean, even recently there was a study on 13 to 14 year old kids. And this wasn't with weights. This was just studying what happens if one group just focuses on running backwards, the other group runs forwards. At the end of the test, the backwards group got faster at running forwards than the forwards group. And they had four times as much vertical gain. So that doesn't mean don't see life through a straw and think, Oh, we should only run backwards. It means that we're all already running forwards. We're all working on that so hard. And that it, it just shows there's a giant missing link there. In our ability and the muscles responsible for deceleration. So I think that's the number one mistake.
1: Yeah, no, that's uh, that's really interesting. And and like you say, you, if you can remain injury free, you know, you're the amount more training you're going to be able to do, you're going to consistently be able to improve rather than having those drawbacks and you know, exactly trying to piece together volume and things like that. So yeah, really good points. Exactly. Um, you spoken about you know your own vertical jumps pretty crazy and you've you've had some great improvements with the athletes do you have any a way to develop that or is it literally your system that that it's a byproduct of your system
0: so let's break down that subject entirely because first we have to distinguish uh you know i come from basketball so in basketball we're talking about a running approach jump which is i would say i mean half of that battle is the technique of it itself. Like it wouldn't be fair to make a rugby player do a basketball style jump. Not that they couldn't do it, but because it has its own technique, you know, specific for that. So, you know, the difference between a standing jump and a running jump, and then you even have other sports, high jump, long jump, right? There's, so there's all kinds of technique involved in that, but all of them will improve a lot just from doing the training itself and then depending on which one we're talking about yeah then it then it is going to get more technical but I mean I was even you know throwing down monster dunks with professional dunkers uh you know who many of whom have become friends now because I've helped them fix their knee pain and they're going you don't even know how to jump (laughs) you know what I mean you're you look your technique sucks but I'm still dunking you know what I mean so I've, I've dabbled in trying to get really focused on the technique side, but I decided it's better for me to stay focused on what I do. So I have a guy on my team who as painful it is to admit, I mean, he makes, he makes me look bad when it comes to jumping. I mean, he's like, he's arguably the highest jumper in the world now because he already had a lot of potential, but he was told he needed knee surgery, hadn't improved, you know, in a while because of the plateau from the knee pain completely fixed his knee pain. So now he's, uh, if people look him up on Instagram at basket Barth, like basketball, but his last name is B A R T H, um, basket Barth. He's got, I don't know, 80,000 followers or so. When I started, when he started working for me, he had 2000 followers, but I knew that he really was a, just incredibly intent on the technique the same way that I was on the knees and the Mm -hmm. physical training. So, For my company, like for basketball players, they actually send their jump technique to him. So I feel it's better that I focus on, you know, I focus on their exercises almost independently of the technique. I kind of want to know that my jump's going up just from the physical training. You know what I mean? I don't really want it to be going up from the technique and then he can take them, you know, the next step further if that's something they're trying to pursue. So for rugby players, I don't even know if jumping is really the best test. I think that speed is, is, Speed is money, you know, and it's like the more muscle mass and speed you can have uh, it's just, I, th- I think speed is probably a better test. What sucks is that speed is really hard to test accurately unless you have really good lasers and stuff, but I'm sure you know all about, about that struggle, you know what I mean, of, of actually testing speed accurately. So there's still some cool stuff on the market, though, jump mats and things like that, where you can at least get, you know, some good ballparks of expression of power, but that's I wanted to just kind of riff on that just to give the full, you know, subject matter, which is that I think the physical training alone, like if it's for rugby, I'm not going to work on, on jump technique. I'm just going to try to Jack, Jack up the jump, you know, naturally. I think a rugby player should have no problem dunking a basketball or things like that, but I, I don't think they should have to focus on technique. They should, you know, the, the numbers of the exercises themselves, plus then I do, if it's needed. So it's, it's not like everyone needs it. A lot of guys will already be super athletic just by applying the system plus working on their sport. But I do have some sort of uh, knee ability plyometrics drills that, you know, then can shock the tendons Um, again, kind of using similar clues to create a bulletproofing style of plyometrics. Like how do you do, you know, how do you do speed and plyometric training you know something any sport could do not not technical stuff for the sport but just just for the pure shock of the of the speed and and plyometrics how do you do that in a way that's going to protect your knees even more so that's a it's a separate thing that anyone in my system can do if they want but it's not like I'm putting my mom through that stuff if you know what I mean yeah. so yeah. so that's my approach to it is is by far most important is the numbers and the training and then depending on sport I think that's second most important. Like for basketball, they actually don't do the, the plyometric stuff. They do the strength, and then they master their jumping on the court because it's already so plyometric. The case I would use the plyometrics is more like, say you have a rugby player and he just does wonderful on the strength, but he's still kind of a slow piece of shit. That's the guy who's, you know, everyone's different. We're not all – this is not just some fair society where we're all genetically blessed the same way, you know. So some guys, if they're starting out – with super inelastic tendons, even if they do a wonderful job on the muscles, you know, it may not be enough time. I think if the muscles are where they need to be, then playing the sport itself as they develop over years, that will be giving the shock, right? If you can if you can put out all that power, you're gonna be receiving the shock. But someone like me, for example, with a natural nineteen inch vertical, even once I started getting the muscles right, my body was only used to falling from that natural nineteen inch vertical. So the muscles did a really good job and got me up into the 30s in my vertical. But to get into the 40s, I had to actually jump as a player. And it, I used a lot of these knee ability plyometrics as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, to, to answer, um, obviously, like you said, with your basketball players, there's a lot of plyometric involvement in the sport. So why overload something they're already doing in the sport when when you're building that? Sort of performance with your own training, your the exercises, and then also like say kind of horses for courses. If if you've got someone who their weaknesses, they don't have that plyometric stiffness, one be of a better term, you know you can you can then add that in. So some some really exactly. Good stuff. Now I, I heard you talk on on other podcasts, and um, and and you've also said today, you know you don't squat and deadlift with you guys, um and you kind of prioritise feet and ankles before knees and hips. Um, could you kind of go into that a little bit more and and maybe explain some of the exercises you use to strengthen the the feet and ankles?
0: Yeah, definitely. I'll give you, um, a good example. So, um, a simple one would be like a single legged calf race, which we do both with the straight leg and with a bent knee. Um, you could imagine that the weaker you are on that and the higher your deadlift, the more chances you would have of shin splints. You'd also be able to potentially accelerate well. you would just have more chance of, of foot pains and shin splints and so my numbers are designed to rebalance so it's not that there's anything wrong with strengthening the hips but usually people are already imbalanced that they need to catch up the ankles and the knees so my my eight essential exercises that I've built my career on those are only for the ankles and the knees then I also do have theories on training the hips and the shoulders that represents four hip exercises and eight upper body exercises. But usually I'll just start someone on the eight knee essentials. So once those numbers are coming up, I'll give you an example of, I mean, I'll, I'll actually paint the picture for you. I'll give you my full hip building system right now. Okay. You ready to ready for your brain to, to mock up a bunch of images and, and hang on with this one. Yeah. All right. So instead of a deadlift and keep in mind people who deadlift, they do this hip, uh, these four hip exercises. And I mean, it jacks up their deadlift. I can deadlift way more. Like when I've just tested it for fun, you know, I, I can pick up loads completely cold that I couldn't even, you know, that would have broken my back to do way less weight back before I did this. So the goal is not to have weak hips, but has to be measurably precise. And if you've seen, uh, my system, if you've seen the full range of motion style split squat that I do, it almost represents like doing a, a full astagrass squat, but on one leg. So I'm a huge fan of, of the concept of astagrass squat, but athletes are usually so imbalanced between sides. I like an astagrass split squat. So let's say we're representing that at 100% of your body weight, bar on front, full depth, back knee, not touching the floor. You can do a front splits just by having that mobility. I can do a front splits cold anytime from that. So I can do 100% of my weight on that exercise. That's about as heavy as I advise guys to go and what my top rugby football guys get to. So let's say you're, let's say you weigh hundred kilos. I don't, but I train, you know, some, some football and rugby guys who do and they can do that hundred kilos bar on front, ass to grass, one-legged, you know, one-legged ATG style split squat. That would be what I would consider world-class in that exercise. Well, imagine a seated good morning where your abs go all the way to the bench. So we're talking like ridiculous mobility. That should also be a hundred kilos on that exercise. And, you know, most guys can't handle that. And guys who do, they end up jacking up their deadlifts, but I believe those two exercises should be in perfect balance. So when a guy does start to jack up his split squat now, that's when I start to put them on the hip essentials, jacking up the seated good morning, the seated good morning is the closest you're thigh and torso go to each other on any exercise there's no exercise they go that close to each other and the research on on doing strength training through ranges like that is just absolutely outstanding in terms of actually being able like you can literally lengthen areas and the strength that you gain from it is incredible and if you imagine a double-legged squat all you're doing is those two movements combined so I can predict squatting potential but do it in a balanced way where I'm comparing one leg to the other and knee strength versus hip strength so Anytime you sink down into a squat, any imbalance between these could be problematic. Any imbalances between ankle mobility could be problematic. Any imbalance between your thigh strength and your glute strength immediately becomes problematic. If either your hips, if your hips are stronger than your knees, then now you're going into a squat and your knees can't handle as much, but vice versa, a guy could ignore the hip system only do the knee system and wind up with with back problems and lacking his potential power because his hip can't keep up. So when you go down into that squat, the better balance you are between one leg to the other, the better balance you are between knee and hip, which are precisely measurable with astrograph split squat and full abs to bench seated good morning. uh, You know, you get stronger at that exercise, but seated good morning is, is exercise number one. Then I progress a Romanian deadlift with full stretch. So imagine just a just imagine Romanian deadlift, and the form points are that your back, your lower back stays arched, that your lower back gets at least to parallel, and that your knee stays back behind your ankle. So it's we're like you know full stretch, like those hamstrings feel like a a sirloin steak with a pit bull on either side of them. Full stretch. Once you get to 100% of body weight on Romanian deadlift, which is only the standard, that's not world class. That means like you're barely average. Now you toss that that bar on your back. And now you're doing the same full stretch on a standing good morning. So getting the standing good morning also to 100% of body weight would represent world class. But with that full stretch, like you've never walked into a gym and seen someone with 100% of body weight on back with a full stretch standing good morning, unless you probably walked into ATG or one of the guys doing online coaching. So now 100% body weight seated good morning, which overloads the glute side of the equation, 100% body weight, standing good morning, which overloads the hamstring side. And again, with those form requirements, your posterior chain is getting pretty dang strong now. But there's still two more points in there. And the next one is that you could be very strong in those stretch positions. But what about the extended position? So a single-legged back extension, one leg should also be 100% body weight would represent world class and that's one that a lot of guys will start out just body weight so this comes more from track and field style stuff where you want your your single legged back extension and not just going up but each rep has to hold at the top because that's where the weight gets heavy just swinging up is the same as doing an rdl now getting a full three count at the top of each rep being able to hold that position now that's really ensuring that you've got the full range but everything we've done so far is really just working that back in its arched position. And oftentimes in sports, we go into a rounded position and anytime you lose form on any of the exercise I just said, you wind up in a rounded position. So a Jefferson curl, a full round with knees locked. So all the weight is on that lower back. That is also gradually progressed. And that one, you got to be really gradual about the progression, but depending on the sport, if there's grappling involved, if there's, if guys are going to be in a rounded position, having to grab other human beings, then that one to be world-class also has to be 100% of body weight. So if you have those four in, if you can do 100%, uh, you know, with perfect form requirements. So Jefferson curl means wrist below your toes with with quads flexed. um, So that you already have just, you know, world class mobility from doing these and world class resilience. If you look at the science behind these different ranges. So 100% body weight, seated, good morning, 100% body weight, standing, good morning, 100% body weight, single leg back extension, 100% body weight, Jefferson curl, Clearly the goal is not to avoid the hips. And in fact, we're just trying to get all the benefits of deadlift, but without any weak links, because you could be great at a deadlift, go into a rounded position and suck. You could be great at deadlift and you could still have slow top end speed. And I've often run with guys on a track and they go, this is bullshit. My numbers are through the roof. How are you dusting me at top end speed? And I take them right to the gym. I put the same weight on the bar. I don't care how much more they weigh than me and my single leg back extension puts them to shame it's like a you're turning your your extension into like a crowbar so the goal is to get every bit that you would get from a deadlift but with full range because a deadlift doesn't go to that full bend a seated good morning does so you could still wind up in a squat I've seen guys who ignore this stuff and have had major injuries from squatting and things like that because just because you're strong in one place doesn't mean you're strong in every other place so those are the four hip essentials and they're built on top of like you wouldn't want a world-class hip number and only a standard knee or ankle number you want world-class ankles then world-class knees then world-class hips um and that's this is how I you know completely I take guy after guy like myself who's you know the genetic run to the litter the the shit athlete the slow guy who's been every speed coach and then turn them into freaks but it's a it's a piece of work
1: and and is that a, an observation you see that guys come in with with the kind of maybe it's easy to develop those standards with the hip exercises, but they don't have them with the the knee and the ankle stuff?
0: Yeah, it's just much 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 more likely that someone's going to come in closer to the hip numbers yeah. and and farther from the knee and the ankle numbers. Yeah. I, I mean, it's it's not uncommon to see a guy who can even hit some of the hip, hip numbers at first. Usually, not with the form qualification I'm looking for, but who at least clearly has some strong hips, you know, but can't, you know, my, my tibialis number can't do what I would expect, you know, a 50-year-old lady to do.
1: Yeah. And um, I, you talked, I, I really like how you've got standards for them and, and you're looking for that balance. And, and you mentioned, obviously, left and right imbalances. How do you deal with a player maybe who's had, you know, lots of injuries on the one side and obviously has lots of imbalances? How do you, how do you bring that other side up?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, first off, my ankle and knee system is built, you know, almost exclusively on training one side at a time, you start with the weaker side, you only match it on the stronger side. So the goal isn't to rebalance by, you know, getting by weakening things into balance. It's more like, say you're 60% of the way there on the right leg and only 40% on the left. Well, the goal is to get to 100% on both, but not to get to to 100% on one and 120% on the other. So To do that, you just always do what the weaker side can do, and then you only match it on the stronger side. You always do the – what's interesting is guys will usually do the strong side first and then do the weak side, but they'd be better off starting on the weak side with fuller intention and fuller nervous system and then just match it on the stronger side, and then over time, gradually, uh, it'll it'll even out that way. But it's much harder to get it to even out as long as you keep perpetuating the imbalance. It's almost like it – it almost holds the weak side back because – if you go from 40, 60 to 50, 70, the weaker side is not necessarily 20% more protected from that 40 to 50 because the imbalance is still there. So the stronger side can still do a juke into the weaker side that then hurts the weaker side just as much. It's, it's the imbalance that causes the injury, um, not just weakness is only half of what causes the injury. Then it's the imbalance itself. You know, why do extremely strong, why do some of the most explosive athletes on earth you know, still blow out knees. Why? Why doesn't a five-year-old girl blow out her ACL? You know what I mean. So
1: that makes a lot of sense. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: and I, I know you use um, like sleds or prowlers um, with your guys. How how do you use those, and what's what's the kind of rationale behind it?
0: Yeah. So the rationale is all the exercise I've described coming up from the ankles and knees. They can simply go a lot better when you have the fucking pump of a lifetime before you even get into them. So you know, towing a sled backwards. Until your quads are about to burst, that alone can fix a lot of knee pains. That's not the that's not the long-term goal of the system. It's really just something I found from trial and error that, you know, having a guy warmed up as safely as possible to even get into the exercise is getting as much blood pumping. I'd rather have his quads pumped and fatigued, but at least have the blood there than, you know, maybe trying to dig into it. So it's it doesn't mean the system doesn't work without it. But I'm just a massive, massive fan of the value of doing these these sledding things, not from a perspective of trying to gain power, but more of a perspective of just try to how to pump up the area as much as possible without that eccentric damage. You know, um, so it's for a guy who's had knee injuries, it can be very hard to really get those those juicy quad pumps. You know, it's it's a blessing for the guys who haven't had the injuries who can. You know, and and honestly. of my market is guys whose knees are really fucked, you know, like their careers, their careers done, and I'm trying to put it back together. So it doesn't mean everyone needs that. But because of how many of my actual clients are in really, you know, difficult positions with their knees, uh, you know, the more of an insane pump, we can get the better. So to try to give an example, usually, we're talking about like two minutes. So, uh, you know, for someone, for anyone listening to this, you could go on every gym has treadmills, right? So you, go on the treadmill, now put your, instead of facing it, put your butt against the console and then don't turn it on and then just get that belt. You know, it has its own internal resistance if you don't turn on, just get it spinning backwards as fast as you can pain-free for two straight minutes. And you can do up to four rounds of that, you know, until you're you practically, you know, feel like you had the hardest leg out of a lifetime. And, and for some guys, that is really what greases the groove so they can even get into the exercises.
1: Uh, that's great that's really that it makes sense and I, I know you use um, like heels elevated and you use wedges and stuff like that. Uh, is, is that something you use all the time or is that something you use at first to get that range and then kind of slowly reduce the, the elevation or remove altogether?
0: I would say it's more of something I recommend gym owners to have because I think it adds a safety element but uh, you know all the exercises can be done without that where you're just on your on the ball of your foot yourself you know, but I think it's, I think it's a good tool to have um, if you're going to be, you know, progressing the loads, not to mention they're just great for calf stretching. So they, they can be a really good tool, especially for gym owners, you know, and, and, and I guess the the concept of it is just that, you know, it, it puts the weight downward onto that ball of the foot while still giving you the support and stability that you would have on flat ground, you know what I mean, which can just make it like my goal is not balanced training that then you can't even handle any loads. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, again, this is a question we ask all the guests on the podcast and it's what advice would you give to an upcoming strength coach?
0: Um, I think my number one piece of advice would be to keep your own skin in the game. Meaning I think the best thing a strength coach could do who wanted to let let's say, you know, because in, in rugby, if you could if you can guarantee an athlete to run faster in rugby, um, that's not, you know, that's just one side of the business, but it's gonna make it easier to get clients. And, you know, if you can measurably improve running speed. But this this is just my piece of advice. It doesn't even mean that it has to be this way, but I just think a a pretty foolproof way to to know that you're on the right course is to be to put the gun against your own head. So the gun is always been against my head to jump higher and do these things so it forces that necessity level on me it forces me to get better people are expecting me to jump higher next year than I am right now you know and so I'm still trying to get better each day myself I'm doing the very programs that I'm putting out of course it doesn't mean that you have to but I actually think it's a it's a huge problem in strength coaching because I think since strength coaches don't have a gun to their own head I think there's too much variance. I think you could go from one team in a league and they might have a great strength coach and the next team might have an absolutely horrid strength coach and no one could really be aware of it. And it's because that's the way the system is set up. So I know from working with NBA players how bad some of it can be. And it's like, you know, they go into the weight room and it's like, my knees hurt and the strength coach has no sympathy for it and just makes them do shit, but the strength coach can't even touch the rim, you know? And if the strength coach, even if they weren't on the team, but if they had to do the same amount of mileage, if they had to do the same, you know, if they had the same gun against their head that the players do, they wouldn't then put that guy with knee pain under 300 pound half squats as he's complaining his knees hurt and, you know, it's getting even stiffer. So you see what I mean? He wouldn't do that shit himself. So I think the bad strength coaches wouldn't be doing the shit that they're doing if a gun was against their head. And I don't think the guys balancing on one-legged doing curls with a pink dumbbell would... I don't think they would be doing that either if people were about to tackle them on the field and if they had to face up to the same thing that athletes were going to have to. So um, so does it mean – I mean, there's a million ways to become a great strength coach, but I think great in terms of the realist sense of the word, in terms of actually getting people results and helping them achieve their dreams because let's be honest business is half the battle of where you get as a strength coach that has nothing to do with how good of a strength coach you are and i think it's super important i think business skills and social media skills are massively important i think a, a trainer should have to do that but even in those realms much easier to succeed when you can demonstrate yourself so i just think it's i just think it's a more guaranteed route of success if you keep that gun against your own head if you have to get the results on your own body that your clients are asking you to get on theirs. That's I think it's a, a paradigm shift. And maybe it's again, it doesn't mean it's the only way to become a good strength coach, but that would definitely be my best advice for an up-and-coming strength coach.
1: No, I think I think it's great advice. <laughs> and clearly you've you've learned from you know, your, your injury troubles and you developed a system from that, which you've, you know, you'll learn as as it adapts as well. Um, but also, like I said, it's having that empathy with with your players and your athletes as well. So it makes a lot of sense. Uh, are, are there any um, books or resources you'd recommend for like developing coaches? And it doesn't have to be you know within the S and C industry. It can can be anything that's kind of impacted you and, and helped you.
0: Um, to be honest, I, I don't, and I I don't mean that in a in a pessimistic way. But I've read a lot of a lot of books and stuff like that, and. I didn't really get what I was looking for there, but I do have a couple, you know, I do have two tips on that. And number one is it's amazing how much there is out there just in, in podcasts and things like this. So number one is I I would really be soaking up a lot. And then, you know, when someone does have, like, say you have a book recommendation, well then check out that book, you know what I mean? And then when, when people do have recommendations, check them out, but you know, get cast, cast a big net and, and study a lot of sources first before you just throw your whole career into one track that maybe 10 years from now you realize wasn't the best. So cast a big net. And then, and then my advice is not uh, my advice on what to study. Like if someone asked me is, so say we're talking rugby right now, do you have like a favorite rugby player yourself?
1: Um, yeah, I guess so. Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, if you search him on Google, would there be like a highlight tape? Yeah. Okay. Watch the whole tape, I don't care if it's an hour long, watch it in 25% speed. So that 10 minute tape becomes 40 minutes or half hour tape becomes two hours. Watch that athlete that you, so if you want to create athletes, like whatever your ideal athlete is, watch that athlete at 25% speed. That I believe is, is better than any book. So that, that got me further than any book I read. So I'm just being honest that that's, yeah that's the book I recommend reading is the book that's in front of your own eyes that hasn't been written yet. So I say, you know, 25% speed, Michael Jordan, or, you know what I mean? Like whatever, whatever you're considering the ideal physical characteristics, you know, maybe not so much skill, unless you're trying to learn on this. If it's skill probably watch the shittiest athlete who still managed to be successful or something like that. I don't know. But in terms of the, the physical characteristics, and you just start to get a really good idea of the balances. And you'll start to see that, you know, like a lot of my numbers come from then finding these athletes, ones I could get my hands on and then testing them and seeing what kind of natural numbers do they have and stuff like that. So that is what got me the furthest 25% speed, even slower if you have to, but YouTube makes it pretty easy. You could just click a button and then it gives you the options of, uh, I think like, you know, fast forward or 50% speed, 25. I know, I know it gives you a 25% speed options. So you're watching it four times slower. So you're really going to pick up a lot of detail.
1: No, I think that's, that's really good advice. Um, yeah, I like that a lot. Um, and kind of last real question. Well, maybe, (laughs) what should I have asked you that I haven't? Is there anything you think that's, that's worth the listeners hearing about?
0: I I actually don't have anything. Uh, I mean, I totally enjoyed it. And if your listeners have any more questions, um, I answer my Instagram DMs under 24 hours, and uh, you know I'm I'm always uh, happy, very grateful to be on your podcast, and I'd be happy to come back again if people have more questions.
1: Yeah, that'd be great. And my next question is, where can people learn more about you? Um, so plug but you. Up. I
0: would say best case is Instagram. So I'm not a natural web guy at all. Um, I haven't even been on Instagram that long, but whatever I do do, I try to do the best I possibly can. So. I've tried to really, you know, master my communications and everything on Instagram. So I have 90 plus thousand followers now. Um, and, and, I'm, you know, I'm on there uh, with regimented schedule so that I can answer questions under 24 hours. You know, I'm starting to learn these other systems. It's just better to hit me up on Instagram rather than on Twitter or these other things, because I haven't yes, really tried sure. to figure those out yet. So right now, that's easily the best place to find me is on Instagram at knees over toes guy.
1: Yeah, and of course we'll share links to that and and your website and the show notes. But yeah, just to finish up, Ben, it's been great talking to you. You've you've obviously created an a amazing system. You're getting some great results. Obviously, not only yourself but thousands of of athletes. And you know, I've had dodgy knees, and I know how frustrating it is. So for you to be able to to cure that, it's um it's an amazing thing. So thank you for sharing your sort of philosophy with us. And all the best.
0: Yeah you're so welcome thank you
1: so much yeah so like I said pretty amazing story and Ben is not only getting results for himself but also his athletes uh, and I know I've played around with some of the exercises and, and they're going to be mainstays in my program I've got history of knee injuries so um, yeah definitely going to use that and, and follow what Ben's doing so Ben thank you for sharing that with us and all the best in the future uh, in the meantime guys please subscribe to us on SoundCloud Stitcher iTunes TuneIn Spotify whatever you use for podcasts uh, and of course give us a 5 our review and keep checking us out at rugbyrenegade.com and on the social media channels until next time thanks for listening to the rugby renegade podcast for more quality rugby strength and conditioning information check us out at rugbyrenegade.com rugby renegade building
0: machines